Will that be compatible with the website or? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it it automatically identifies the location of that recording, and it's still identifying it as the Hindu temple. So. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting, interesting topic. <laughs> Um, so Sunday morning, we um, began chapter 13, watching out for false teachers. I wanted us to take two classes on this particular one. Uh, I think it's significant for us to, to work through the, the importance of it. Um, before I kind of jump into a few more things, what kind of thoughts or questions or Clarifications do I need to give uh, before we jump back into it? No clarifications at all, Gary? I'm going to be listening very carefully to everything you say tonight. Oh, man. Okay, well. Yes, John? I, you know, I, I, I was on in, uh, in alignment with what we talked about on uh, Sunday. Uh, it is interesting how Jesus does uh, rebuke the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23-23 where Mm -hmm. he tells them, hey, yeah, you you tied these spices, the mint, the dill, the cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So they're all important, but even Jesus recognized Yes. Some things are different in some way. Yes, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up. There, <clears throat> there were a couple of questions that were asked after a, a class of me. I, I in no way wanted to give the the indication that everything is exactly all on the same plane as far as uh, level of importance. I hate to say that. Anything in God's word is important, Right. There's not a page in here that's just a filler because, you know, Mark just wasn't quite long enough. Could you say foundational? Foundational. Uh, Again, there was a translation of that particular verse that we were talking about where he says, um, and I'm trying to remember the the page that he mentioned, things of first importance. 162. Thank you, 162. So he's referencing 1 Corinthians 15, things of first importance. Uh, there are some translations that that simply translated it um, f- first and and foremost, or or first things first, which is to say, uh, someone who is coming to you presenting the gospel is is not likely. And Paul didn't start with instructions about the organization of the church, specifics of worship, before they've even had a chance to preach to you the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, right? There are some things that you need to preach first before you, you start working about, uh, through some of those details. I, I think the, the, the only thing I wanted us to come away with with that particular point was I think we need to be careful, based on that s- single translation, to start creating buckets. These things are obviously really important, and everything else we shouldn't we shouldn't even have any kind of disagreement or, or quabble or, or study about um, we should not artificially create buckets uh, where God does not um, let's read a, a couple of passages before we we jump in unless there was anything else David's thinking no okay Micah uh, to, to your point uh, even in the great commission 
go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then after teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Um, interesting that it doesn't say teach them to observe all things and then they will be, and then baptize them. Right. But it doesn't say baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and then stops there. Correct. That they, that they are to learn and to grow. Yes. And we see that happening in, in Acts chapter 2, right? Those thousands of people who, who were baptized, they were, they were joined into, into the church and they continued in the apostles' teaching. Right? There was still more learning to be done and teaching to be done. Um, and, and that takes time, and, and we need to be patient with them as they, as they go through that. Let's read a couple of passages here. 2 Timothy um, chapter 1. Um, this is kind of our main text, um, which is the admonition that, that Paul gives uh, to be uh, watch out um, for those who are teaching things contrary to the doctrine of Christ. Uh, but let's jump into these passages here, 2 Timothy 1, uh, 13 through 14. Again, if, uh, if you turn there and, and you can start reading that, for those who want to kind of get ahead, we'll also read these two passages as well. So somebody jump in with 2 Hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good, uh, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Okay, uh, read that at uh, the beginning of 13 again. Hold fast, Hold fast. the pattern of sound words okay. which you have heard from me. Yep. Hold, past the, hold fast the, the pattern of sound words, right? Uh, mine says follow the pattern. Um, let's read Philippians 4 and, and verse 9. <clears throat> things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you so who's speaking here in... alright so Paul is, is telling this, this group of Christians in, in Philippians what you've learned what you've received and heard and seen right not only the things that he spoke to them but the things that he did among them he says practice those things and the God of peace will be with you um, how about Second Thessalonians two? Uh, a couple of passages here in Second Thessalonians. So Second Thessalonians two fifteen. Somebody jump in there. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And then can you do uh, 3, 14 through 15? If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn, warn him as a brother. And that particular passage we've already discussed here in this class. We actually started up in verse 6 about those who were, <clears throat> um, uh, some translations say idleness, um, But he ends that by saying, he wraps up his whole letter by saying, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I wanted us to read those passages and ask this question. Why does the Holy Spirit, through the inspired apostles, put such an emphasis on recognizing and addressing false teaching 
because this is only about a third of the verses we could have read where Paul is giving this admonition. Hold fast to the things you've been taught. Guard the thing that's been entrusted to you. Um, He says, you know, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught. Why is Paul giving this admonition so frequently? The concept of holding fast is to hold tightly without letting go. And sometimes uh, it may be tempting through the the weariness of the world to let go or to grab onto something that's more appealing. Um, and, and as we continue to interact with one another, there may be people with different uh, understandings, different interpretations, wrong interpretations, and uh, just to assume, oh, they, they mean well, so just take what they, they mean as gospel. Right. Uh, What we have been given, (laughs) what we've been made stewards of, and we talked about this in our stewardship class, right? The gospel has been given to us, entrusted to us. We are stewards of this thing. We didn't, uh, uh, it didn't originate with us, but we have been, we have been commanded by God to hold fast to it because you're right. The world will try and either take it from us, drive it out of us. Satan, I think, is more interested in just manipulating it. He doesn't necessarily want to pull it all out of us, but if he can, if he can manipulate it, I mean, we saw him do that from, from the, the very first interaction with human beings. Um, don't let it go. Don't let it get corrupted or changed or added to. Hold fast to it because either we will be tempted from outside to alter it or we ourselves may be tempted to say at times, let's be honest, sometimes this is, is so hard. Sometimes it's hard to, to do what, what we've been told. Sometimes it's hard to believe what we've been told to believe. Sometimes it would be easier to just let, let it go and, and go with the flow of, of this world. And he says, don't, don't let that happen. Hang on to it and be mindful of those. And that's what this chapter is about. Be mindful of those who may come to you with something different than what I taught you. Yeah, David. I think one of the big dangers of false teaching <coughs> is if you are taken in by that and swayed by that, you think you're just fine. I'm following Christ. Right. I'm, I'm a religious person. And whereas somebody who cares nothing about doing what's right is a highly immoral person, they're not going to be fooled into thinking they're in a right relationship with God. They just don't care or don't right. believe in God at all. Right. Whereas somebody who has been swayed by a false teacher, they can be very sincere. Absolutely. And think, I'm doing the right things. Right. Uh, like, I, like I mentioned, at least in, in my experience, I've never met someone who, who considered themselves to be a false teacher, Right. And I'm not just pushing this out to, you know, those people who may say things that are contrary to the gospel. What am I teaching? I need to be careful. And Gary, you kind of joked, but you're going to be listening to every single word that I say. Well, I hope so. Because if I end up saying something that's not in accordance to this, like I need someone to call me out. In sincerity, I I believe that I am. But we need to be watchful uh, of our own selves that when we teach others the gospel of Christ that it is only what's what's presented here let's read again there was a portion in, in the book 
um, page 160, he, and I appreciate this of the author, he commends us to recognize that there's a common responsibility that we have to be watchful and mindful of the teaching that is, is done among us. Um, he says halfway down that, that second paragraph, in the letters to the seven churches, um, uh, referenced there in Revelation 2 and 3, the risen Christ scolds two of the congregations, Pergamum and Theatira, for tolerating people in their midst who promoted false teaching and false living. Only a minority of those in the churches were guilty of false teaching, but the entire membership of both are held responsible for their failure to act to correct the situation. By contrast, the church at Ephesus, in spite of its other problems, has tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. To quote John, he who has an ear to hear, um, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It was important that that these congregations recognized what teaching was being done among them. And Ephesus, you know, this is the church that, that Christ had said, you, you've lost your first love. You're doing the things and you're standing firm, but you're just not passionate and zealous about it anymore. But he does commend them for the fact that apparently people who called themselves apostles came in among them and taught something, and Ephesus put them to the test. Which is actually uh, a command that we're given <clears throat> in um, one of the letters of, of Peter. He says, uh, test the spirits, right? Don't just believe anyone who says, I'm a Christian, I've got a message from the Lord. Well, that's not always going to be true. So how do we put it to the test? We open the book and we see whether it matches with what, what God has, has already delivered. In fact, <clears throat> um, and we've been using this um, in, in some of our previous studies with, with Mormons, um, that was the same test given in the Old Testament. Uh, God said, that when a prophet comes in among you claiming a word from me, how do you know if a prophet is true or not? Do you guys remember the twofold test? It comes to pass. All right, so first, if they come with a message from me in my name, God says, and they claim that something's going to happen and it doesn't come to pass, you know they're a false teacher. But there's a second test. He says if a prophet comes, Micah. Uh, if, and it comes to pass, but they say, here, let's do something different that's not in accordance with what uh, God had already <laughs> given to them. Yes. So the, he's, God, God says there may be someone who comes and claims special divine revelation from me. And the thing actually comes to pass. You need to then verify that with what I've already given you, God says. And if those things are not the same, if, if they're calling you after uh, some, other, um, some other direction, um, they're actually supposed to put those people to death. Well, that, that's why it seems like, like Jesus and then Paul and Peter and Jude talk about not just the, that the teaching is off, but that... There's other things that are coming with that, like we talked about on Sunday. Like yes. The, the sexual immorality and, and trying to cause division. and like It's not just a different teaching, but like there's other things oftentimes that accompany that. Like, okay, so now that I got you on board with this, it's kind of like the bait and switch. Yes. That, okay, now I can bring all these other things along with that. And, and that's 
also what they seem to be warring against. Yes, and that's why, like with with the churches there in Revelation, that these the the types of them, like um, the Nicolaitans, but also like the one that they uh, they call Jezebel. Correct. You know, like the things that are coming along with that. Yes, and that was one of the things we talked about. Um, how do you recognize a false teacher? One of the ways you recognize a false teacher is what are the what's the fruit being born from the thing that they are teaching? Because God's true message cannot produce evil things, and that was what what Jesus talked about. You can't have good fruit come from a bad tree, and you can't have bad fruit come from a good tree. So if somebody's coming and saying we should believe this and we should live this way, this is what God says, but their life is not bearing the kind of fruit that that we know uh, God's true gospel should. Those should be some red flags. That's very interesting you're taking the analogy of the fruit here because Satan is very good at disguising bad fruit as good fruit. Yes. In fact, he used fruit at the very beginning, didn't he? God created that tree, if you remember. That wasn't something that Satan created and then said, now I want you to eat it. Like that was something God made. And he had a specific intent for that. But Satan turned it and God into something in, in the minds of those two people that was, was never uh, intended. I say that because a lot of times things fall under the umbrella of it is good. It is a good work. God is good. It is a good work. God is going to be happy with us doing this good thing, even if it's not authorized in his word. People uh, use that logic to say it's good. It's okay. And again, we always have to define things the way that God defines. Um, how seriously, then, should we treat the, the different words that have been used thus far, the teaching or the doctrine or the traditions of these inspired writers? How serious should we treat the gospel of Christ? Well, if it's like how, how serious uh, you know, do you want to, to give to something that you believe for your salvation, like... Okay, so, like, you know, I don't know if I need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but, like, isn't that what brought you? Like, why, why, would, you, why would you say, like, this is the one of the, this, this is a pillar? Did you go, ah, you know, like, can, don't have to, like. Yeah, I mean, think about what's at stake here. And I well, think. When he says that there are even those who are denying him who bought them, you know, that. They're denying their Lord. Like, isn't that like the whole, that's the whole whole caboodle, you know? What are we doing? That's everything. Like, you're not just like, again, majoring the minors, but like, this is the big thing in that, and that you're you're advocating to, to even throw off that. Yes. And I don't know that you'll meet many people, I, I certainly haven't, who were Christians one day and then woke up the next morning and said, I'm chucking it all, like. Oh, God can't be real, and Jesus was made up. And No, typically it is a progression where you allow this in, and that sounds reasonable and good, and it's not that far removed, and you allow this. And then when you eventually take that train to the station, you get to a point where uh, they'll, uh, the, the apostles call it, or Paul calls it, making shipwreck of their faith. They, they end up taking a route that was not the way the gospel should go, and, and eventually they become shipwrecked. There's a passage in in 1 Corinthians 14. 
And uh, uh, one of the adult classes is actually going to be studying 1 Corinthians uh, this next quarter. Uh, Verses 37 and 38. uh, Paul, after he's been giving quite a bit of a rebuke about their assemblies and their misunderstanding of what these these miraculous things were for. They were not for uh, selfishness and, and, and pride, but they were supposed to be used to serve the collective. But he says at the end, uh, in verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, I've met people, I know some people very, very close to us, that believe very much that the gospel is everything that Jesus spoke, and the apostles' writings are just kind of supplemental. You know, they, they believe in the red-letter gospel, and they fail to realize that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the authority to those apostles, and then he did it again with Paul, where he gave them the authority to carry on his work. He said that he would send the Holy Spirit and they would, it, it, the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance the things that he had taught. So when Paul speaks with such authority, the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. How seriously should, should we treat it? <clears throat> so when Paul said in Acts Twenty, when he met with the, the Ephesian elders, Acts 20 and verse 27, he said that I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He didn't say, I gave you the really important stuff and you figure out the rest. And he didn't say, here's the really important stuff and, and if you all disagree about this part and this part, I'll leave that to you because what's really important is you, you believe in Jesus. He said, I, I gave you everything you needed. And he tells Timothy to guard that, to follow the pattern, to hold to the traditions. And we, we mentioned this a little bit, but I want to make sure uh, that I, I clarify myself Let's, let's give a few examples. What if someone comes, and they're not necessarily saying Jesus was not divine. You know, clearly he wasn't actually the son of God. That just means he was a servant. They're not saying things so blatantly false. But what if they come and present part of the gospel to such an extent that that's all that they present to you? Are they doing what, what Paul commands, what Jesus commanded? Are they presenting the whole counsel of God? So here's an example. Jesus was a prophet. I think I used this one last time, but Jesus was a prophet. He spoke for God. He performed miracles and he preached of the kingdom of heaven. Have I given you the gospel? That's all I teach. And I'll expound on that and I'll help you appreciate and I'll show examples of how Wonderful Jesus' ministry was, and he spoke of the kingdom of heaven, and he was a really good prophet. Have I presented to you the gospel? No, I've, I've actually presented to you what the Islam, you know, the religion of Islam, believes about Jesus. It feels like it feels like a joke without the punchline. Like, like you, it's like a it's you, a sick you, joke. You told all it? the auxiliary stuff, but you've not 
Like, okay, that, like, okay, what, what's and this And then what, to? right? Yeah. Jesus died for our sins. So he was divine. He was the son of God. He died for our sins so that we can have forgiveness. He offers us grace and mercy because not only did he die, but he was raised. And that proved that he was the son of God. And if we pray to God, we recognize his lordship, we'll be saved. And there's nothing, there's nothing God requires of us. I just need to acknowledge what he's done. And that's the good news of the gospel. Have I given you the gospel? I've given you some good news. But is that the gospel that Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost? I call that Satan's gospel. But like any other teaching, so what? Like if you have, if you have nothing else, I just, here's information. I mean, that's about all that is. It's just here's information. Okay, what, what do I do with this? Well, but some would say what you do with that is you, you acknowledge it and you believe it. You call out to him. You say, Lord, Lord. Have I given you the gospel? Saying, Lord, Lord, is not enough. What did Jesus say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. <laughs> not everyone who acknowledges that Jesus has authority over them. Not everyone who even uses his name to do incredible, incredible things. But what does he say? But he who what? Actually does what God says. Well, so if I've only given you what God has done for you, but I make it seem like the gospel is, all you've got to do is, is acknowledge what God has done for you. And you're good. Is that truly the gospel? Well, that message doesn't change me in any way. And the point of Jesus dying um, for me was to change me. And so I have to change. I have to respond to that in a way that says, Lord, what do you want me to do about this good news? Right. And then he says, Peter tells them what to do about it because they do respond in that way. Right. What what should we do? What What should we we do? do? Right. And look, Peter did not say, you've got a lot of catching up to do. You've done so much wrong. You're going to have to be working at this your whole life to make this balance sheet even. That is, that is not what he says. They had murdered the Messiah. They, they were never going to pay that debt. We have murdered the Messiah with our sin. We're never going to pay that debt. Salvation wasn't offered to us because of the things that we did. But Jesus does require us to repent. Okay, the sins that put him up on the cross... I need to commit to God that I'm not going to willfully do those things anymore. I I need to allow him to make me into a different person. I need to be baptized. That death, burial, and resurrection is is recreated in this baptism. I can't leave that part out and call that the gospel. What about God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit? So when we, hang on, don't steal my punchline. I'm listening. When you worship, where you worship and how you worship is inconsequential. As long as I have the right kind of sincere heart, God will accept my worship no matter what I give to him. 
because God wants us to worship him in spirit. Have I preached to you the whole gospel? Paul spent an unnecessary amount of time in the book of 1 Corinthians, if that's really what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. Instead, Paul spent chapter upon chapter saying, when you are in a collective, when you are there assembled as God's church in your locale, this is what I expect, this is what God expects your assemblies to look like. When you do the Lord's Supper, and I appreciate this about, he doesn't get real specific about the the things we're eating and drinking. It seems like he kind of assumes they know But he spends a lot of time talking about the heart that we need to have. Don't leave people out. It's not a meal for you to get full and drunk. It's not not for you to make people feel less. You do it as a collective. He, He goes to great lengths to make sure that we are worshiping in the correct kind of way. But the temptation and the false teaching that permeates our religious culture right now is that as long as my heart is sincere, I can choose to worship God this way, even though there's nothing in the New Testament that says I can do that. There's no indication even in in early church history that anyone even thought of doing that. And you can fill in the blank here. But I'm doing it sincerely, so surely God will accept that as, as worship. Have I preached to you what Paul preached to them. And if I'm not preaching to you the full counsel of God, if I'm not preaching to you, teaching you the traditions, the teachings, the doctrines, whatever you want to call it, that the apostles did in that first century, am I preaching the whole counsel? So Hebrews chapter 12, specifically related to this topic. Because I've had discussions with, with brothers and sisters about specifically worship when it comes to worship. What, what, is, what does God expect of us? What is that supposed to look like? In the Old Testament, God was really specific. <laughs> Down to the, the length of the curtain that was supposed to hang between the holy place and the most holy place. Down to the ingredients of the incense that was supposed to be burned. How, how you were supposed to bake that bread and how often it was supposed to be exchanged out. And there's a temptation to think, well, with the, with the completion, not the doing away with, but with the completion of the, the law of Moses, that now we don't have to worry about the specifics anymore. That God wants us to worship him in spirit, and so we now have the freedom to choose how we do that. In Hebrews chapter 12, and I I wish we had time to read the last few chapters, but this is kind of uh, finishing up this, this thought. In verse 28, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because as long as we're sincere, God's going to accept our worship because he knows our hearts. Is that what that verse says? 
these type of things don't preach <laughs> uh, frequently. They don't preach. I, I don't want to say they don't preach well because it's scripture. What does it say? Why? Our God is a consuming fire. What does that make you think of? What stories does that make you think of when it comes to offering God unacceptable worship? I think of Nadab and Abihu. It does literally say that God chose fire to consume them. I think of Uzzah. David, a man after God's own heart, wanted to take the ark of God out of this tent that had been misused and and abused and neglected for hundreds of years and say, I want to build a temple and I want to bring it to Jerusalem. God knew David's heart. And yet David still specifically did. I didn't realize this until Tommy taught the class. It specifically said to do it with the poles. There were other parts of the tabernacle that they could use an ox cart with. It wasn't that they came out with a whole brand new idea. This is cool. Let's try this. The, the, the ox cart was there, but it was not meant to transport the ark. David thought it should. Uzzah thought it should. And God struck him dead. I think of Ananias and Sapphira, who misused the giving of God. I can't read passages like this and say, God doesn't really care about the specifics of our worship as long as we have a sincere heart. And so those who want to teach that it's up to us to make it all up uh, are not preaching the full gospel. Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of giving, do I have to give all the caveats? a statement. Well, you haven't preached the entirety of the gospel uh, in making three statements. You know, like, okay, you know, we're not going to just say that it's you have to have taught it all in three seconds. Sure. No, you're not going to say that. You know, sure. You're trying to be reasonable. But then also, to, to, I might question someone's sincerity toward God if they don't take this worship of God serious, though, either. That they may say that well, you know, I'm sincere towards God, but I'm not going to do what he says. Well, it doesn't sound like you're really sincere about God. Uh, so I might more question that. I might more question your heart and your motives about that. Because I think God also does say, you know, like through John in uh, in, in uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2, that, you know, if even if a heart condemns us, uh, God is greater than our heart's. Like God understands, you know, he knows what's going on behind the Correct. scenes. And so it's not just, unless you have this perfect, like he's not become another. Correct. Yeah, he's not just become another, well, I'm, you know, you're, you haven't done it perfectly. You know, I haven't figured it all out. You know, I'm sorry, you know. Right. But it, yes. But it's kind of the balance of the two, right? It's, it's, it's not that I understand fully, but I'm, I'm, I'm do, bringing to God what I know and what I'm trying to do with a sincere heart. Yes. And if and if something were to to be told, like with like with David, it, well, you should have used the poles. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to use those poles. I don't care how many different ways you got to strike all these people down. I'm going to continue. Like that, his very heart shows what what he would do about that. He would change what he was doing. Yes. But someone who doesn't change that, like. Doesn't that speak more to their heart? It does. And I think about, you know, we've used this example of uh, Aquila and Priscilla coming to Apollos. You know, he was teaching something false. It was not the whole gospel of Christ. 
And yet when they came to him, we, we aren't given a lot of information, but we are told enough to know about this man that he was a good man. And he accepted that and was willing to change. Um, God does not expect us to know all things about everything spiritual. <laughs> Otherwise, he's not letting us in. It's, that's called grace. That's called mercy and patience and forbearance. Attributes of God that he's described himself from the very beginning of the Bible. When God uh, accepts worship from us, this is not a New Testament concept. It's a biblical concept. He not only wants us to do the things he's commanded, but he wants us to do them with the right kinds of heart. You think about, um, is it Malachi, where he says, I would rather you close the doors of the temple. You're offering sacrifices, you're doing all the things, but you hate it. And you complain to me about it. And you're bringing me the sick and the worthless. You're killing the animals. He said, I would rather you just stop until you, you change your heart. That, uh, it, it wasn't a new thing when Jesus said, I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. I want you to not only do the things that I've commanded, but I want you to do it th- thankful that you can be doing it. And, and the, the letter to the Ephesians is, is one of my favorites. That first half of that book is, here are all the reasons why we should be so incredibly grateful and appreciative of God and what he's done. This was a master stroke to, to adopt us as sons and forgive us of our sins and do this thing through Jesus. And it took thousands of years and he did it perfectly. Therefore, let's walk worthy of, of that calling. Um, but the point is, we must be willing to walk. We, we must be willing to acknowledge and, and do what, what God has, has required, knowing we're going to fall and we're going to fail. We're not going to do it perfectly. But God has promised us that if we, if we ask him for forgiveness, if we repent, he's never going to uh, deny us that. Um, as long as we got, have the heart to say, oh, wow, yeah, I'm, I haven't been doing this the way I should this. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I want to do better. I want to please him um, and acknowledging that. Sometimes what we call sincerity is just being super charged and excited about our own ideas. Um, hmm. And when we think about how patient and long-suffering God is in our walk with him, our growth, we can think about um, so easily think about our children. There are just so many allowances that we make early in their lives that we're not going to make, you know, when they're older mm-hmm. and have matured and should have learned lessons, you know, coming with that same kind of enthusiasm for things that they've already been told they're not supposed to do and it are not going to please us. And they're still all excited about it because they still think it's a great idea you know, it's, that's not going to cut the mustard, you know, when they're 14 like it did when they were four. And so we can be that same way, but I'm so sincere just means I, it comes to me, I just really like this idea. I just really like doing things this way. I think that this is, makes a cool service or, you know, this is the way, I think this is a great way to serve God. And I'm not in the word. I'm not trying to grow. I'm not really... Um, loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind. I was thinking about that earlier at the beginning of class when Michael was talking about foundational, how the 
argument that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 15 is that this is the foundation. If you don't believe the foundation that Jesus died and, you know, rose again, then all the rest of it, which is equally important, doesn't matter. And um, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandments were, and mm-hmm. he said he gave the first and the second, mm-hmm. it's because those are foundational. Loving God with everything, and then an extension of that is loving your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't mean that those are the only things we need to agree on, and the rest of it is just, you know, interpret that however you want. It, it's that these are foundational. And when we get stuck on the word sincerity, sometimes it's because we've missed the foundation of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, which means trying to grow in him and trying to constantly learn how we can better please him. And we just continue to hold on to what we like, which isn't loving God. Right, and it is a constant balance. You know, uh, and we're kind of on this topic of of worship. Uh, To me... I think some of the some of the more prevalent things that I've heard, at least in my lifetime, when it comes to false teaching, tend to have to do with with our worship, or at least the the function and organization of the church. Jesus said to do it in spirit and in truth. Too much of one at the expense of the other is false teaching. But too much of you know. So if I'm doing it in the spirit and I've got the zeal and my hands are raised and we're screaming and you know jumping around. But I'm not actually doing, you know, I'm not, as Paul commands the people in, in, in Corinth, it's clearly chaos, and we're not doing things decently in an order, and everyone's talking over and yelling and singing over the top of each other. But I've got the spirit, well, that's, that's false teaching. But if I'm just focused on the truth, all the specifics, but I've, I've stripped the heart out of it, I'm so stuck on obedience, I forget the grace... Well, I'm so stuck on the, the details that I forget of what God has done that is more than I will ever. Uh, I, I, it's, it's impossible for me to pay back. We, we do the gospel a disservice. Um, <clears throat> real quick. Yep. Your reading in Hebrews says that since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, the whole idea of a kingdom with a king and subjects hmm. is that I yield... To the king. Right. And I think that's, you know, that's that's part and parcel to what we've been talking about, you know, yeah. is my attitude that I'm going to yield to the king as he has declared. Yeah. And sometimes, I don't often think, but sometimes I think uh, I was born in the wrong generation. We were born in the wrong generation. What does a king look like? I don't know. I've never <laughs> actually been under a king. I, we live in America. We live in a democracy. We decide what the, the laws are by majority vote. Right? We decide who our leaders are, at least we should, by a majority vote. We'll leave that one for now. So let's end this uh, by, by asking the question. It's not enough for us to sit around and go, those dirty false teachers, we've got to watch out for them, they're trouble, and this is what it's going to sound like and look like. What do we do when we encounter false teaching? And we talked about it briefly, but I, I want us to make sure we're ending with this. We do with anyone who is presenting something that's not the full gospel of Christ. Or maybe it's not the gospel of Christ. It doesn't even look like it. In the same kind of forbearance and love and patience that God has shown to us. 
Paul recognized, because some of the passages uh, that we read on Sunday, there may come a time where after approaching those individuals, they do not have the right kind of heart. And they still want to put that message out and, and, and give that teaching. And I don't really care what the Bible says. It seems good to me. Or I'm not interested in studying with you about this anymore. I've made up my mind. Paul has very specific instructions about what we should do. But as with anything in regards to church discipline or or fellowship or unity, we should never go straight to the, I'm going to label them, I'm going to mark them, and I'm going to never have any kind of contact with them again. No. They're my brother or my sister in Christ. And if I, if I believe that they are not properly handling the word, we're talking about not just their soul that's at stake, but anyone who listens to them. Potentially, there, there is danger to people who may be listening to that and believing that. The, the, the word is a sword. And if we don't handle it correctly, someone's going to get hurt. So we go to that person with that kind of spirit. I'm trying to help you. And I appreciated... Uh, let's read that one more time. Uh, the end of this, what is it, page 165. <clears throat> the end of that, that main paragraph there. Even though what our brother believes may be very different from what we have always heard and believed, if we were to sit down with him or her and discuss it, we might find that his point of view is as biblical as our own, if not more so. On the other hand... Our personal attention and concern may help our brother see that he is in fact in error and respond accordingly. Again, keeping discipline within the context of the local church makes this both workable and effective and also makes us less likely to criticize the beliefs of others without knowing them or without knowing what we're talking about. We come to that person with a sense of humility because even though we may initially say, I I don't believe that what they're saying is the truth. We may, upon study, realize that actually they are teaching the truth and I've got this wrong. And as long as we both have that kind of heart, then we don't have to bring this before the church and, and make it known that this person is a false teacher so we can all be watchful and mindful of, of their teaching. No, it becomes, wow, we've helped each other grow here. And, and isn't that what, what this is all about? One of the questions that I had asked, um, how do we defend against these false teachers? Paul said in Ephesians 4, it's one of the reasons why uh, God gave us teachers and and pastors and preachers and and evangelists. Um, These are people who can equip us, build us up, unify us, and prevent us from being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There are going to be people who are coming with different doctrines. And God has blessed us with with these individuals, elders and and leaders in the church, teachers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who can help us us identify these things and and fight against them. Um, One more passage real quick in Titus chapter 1. And this will lead into the, the, the next chapter of the book that we'll discuss on Sunday. In the qualifications for elders, Paul, to, um, Paul says to Titus that this individual, 
this this potential elder in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And that's what the next chapter is going to be about, redefining the, the role of elders, thinking of them as more of what the Bible describes them as shepherds who at times need to defend the flock. Um, God gave these elders to do this, to, to give instruction in sound doctrine, hold firm to that trustworthy word as taught, and then at times rebuke those who may contradict it. So that's what we'll cover on Sunday. Thank you.